When bad, despotic, corrupt governments fall, in part because their patrons in this corrosive industry have lost their market share and can no longer do it, that is when democracy needs to be freaking fantastic and needs to be ascendant because when the boot comes off the neck of countries around the world that haven't had democratic governance, in part because of corrosive and exploitative industries like this, we in the United States should be there to help. And what we should be there to help with is our example of a strong, vibrant, non-corrupt democracy that works for the people. When Rachel Maddow, host of the Emmy award-winning Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC, set out to research her latest book, Blowout, she wasn't necessarily looking to write about the oil and gas industry. Instead, the question she was asking was this. At a time when democracy is falling and authoritarianism is rising globally, what do we do? I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. In October of 2019, Maddow gave a lecture and had a conversation with multimedia journalist Joni Balter at a packed Benaroya Hall. From man-made earthquake swarms in Oklahoma to Ukrainian revolutionaries to Russians hacking the 2016 election, Maddow unwinds the skein of the unimaginably lucrative and equally corrupting oil and gas industry. Her work warns us what's at stake if we leave the industry highly subsidized and largely unregulated. This is Sal on Air. Oh, geez, there's a lot of you. (laughs) So I peeked a little bit from the side door and I could see this whole sea of people and I started to freak out. I had no idea there were other rows of people. You guys, thank you very much. Wow. Woo! This is very exciting. All right. I love you too. I do. And I am, um, I am, it is overwhelming to see all of your faces. Um, And I will say two things about that. One is that uh, I, I did a book Uh, six or seven years ago about the military called Drift, and I, um, thank you, Um, and I I did book tour events there where people would come out and see me, and it was overwhelming. There's something about the fact that it is now, that was, I think, 2012, and it's now 2019, and I feel like in that time period, over those seven years, we have become all the more uh, a country where we spend so much of our time behind our screens, especially when we want to consume information, um, uh, imbibe words, uh, come up with new ideas. We do so much of that behind our screens, and that's not necessarily bad, but it makes it that much harder to put the screen down and decide that you're going to go do this bodily in person, in a place you have to move yourself to, to be around strangers. And so to be here in this room, to have so many of you guys here, it is, it feels amazing. Um, and also scary. So the other thing I will say is that I'm taking off my glasses so I can no longer see you. (laughs) 
All right. Um, thank you again. And what I'm going to do uh, here is I'm going to read a little bit from the book, and then I'll talk just a little bit, but then Joni's going to come out and we're going to do Q&A. I will tell you that I had planned in talking about the book to pick the really funny stuff. There's a really funny bit about walruses. And I was like, that'll slay. That'll be amazing. People will love that. And then the president started getting impeached. And so I had... I, I did not do that. So thank you for the, for the applause. But <laughs> the, 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 pre the president started getting impeached and weirdly he started getting impeached for what my book is about in a way. And so I feel like I, have, I commend to you the walruses part. And there's also some good Seattle stuff in here too, I will say. But um, because of what's going on in the news, and particularly because I think this might be helpful for the discussion with Joni and your questions that we already have, I, I want to I highlight a part of the book that I do think helps a little bit in understanding what's going on with the impeachment. So I hope you don't mind. Um, the reason I wanted to do this particularly tonight is because these guys got arrested yesterday. And a couple of little details that sort of show you how this connects. When they were arrested, they were at Dulles Airport, and they reportedly, according to the U.S. attorney, had one-way tickets to fly abroad and away. And that's apparently why they moved up the indictment and the arrests to stop them from leaving the country. They brought them after they were arrested for their initial court appearance to court in the Eastern District of Virginia, because that's where Dulles Airport is. And they had unusual lawyers their lawyers turned out to be, surprise, Paul Manafort's lawyers. Wait a minute. Are you guys just like the standby lawyers, like in night court? Or, or is there something we should know? So I thought that was interesting. Um, this is also interesting because the scheme for which the president is now being impeached the president has been working with his lawyer, um, Rudy Giuliani, on this scheme. And one of the things that Mr. Giuliani has said about where he's been trying to, or who he's been working with to try to get this um, quo from Ukraine is with Paul Manafort. Manafort is a federal inmate He's the president's campaign chairman. He's serving a seven-plus-year federal prison sentence. But Mr. Giuliani says that he has been consulting with Manafort's lawyers and presumably with Manafort himself on trying to get um, investigations out of Ukraine that would be harmful to the Democrats and help the president in his re-election effort. So the president admits that he's working with the jailed campaign chairman on that. <laughs> the, the other piece of this, which like, I honestly did not intend to write a book about this thing that was going to be going on in the news. I thought, oh, maybe people will like this book if they care about oil and gas. It's definitely not going to be connected to anything happening with this. That, 
The other person who um, is not in jail <laughs> or federal prison who Mr. Giuliani says he has been working with in terms of what he wants to get out of Ukraine. So it's the guys who were arrested who are now in jail, in federal jail in Virginia. Uh, and it's the president's campaign chairman who is in federal prison. The other person he has, says he has been working with is a man named Dmitry Firtash, who is not in prison. He is under arrest and out on bail fighting extradition to the United States for a multi-billion dollar bribery scandal. And U.S. prosecutors say that he is an upper echelon associate of Russian organized crime. So that's Giuliani's team. for this effort to fight corruption. <laughs> and Mr. Furtash, um, well, I, I wanna talk about him for a second, um, but just before I came over here, this didn't even make it onto our show tonight, which I just did here in Seattle right before coming over here. Um, Reuters reports tonight that these guys who just got arrested, who are in jail in Virginia as part of this scheme, um, their efforts in this regard were being, in Reuters' words, financed by this guy, Dmitry Firtash. So the people who were arrested working alongside the president's lawyer on this scheme to get a foreign government to interfere in the election on his behalf who are now gonna face charges for using Russian money to make illegal donations to lots of Republican candidates, they were apparently being financed in these efforts by a pro-Russian Ukrainian billionaire who's an upper echelon associate of Russian organized crime. But other than that, it seems like... <laughs> so that's the background for why I wanted to read this part of the book tonight. Okay, ready? <clears throat> the biggest threat Putin had to keep at bay was the prospect of strong, rich, stable, Western-oriented democracies in Russia's near abroad. That sort of thing could not only challenge or constrain Russia's regional power, it could conceivably, the horror, inspire the Russian people themselves, leading them to demand a democratic say in their own government as well. The solution was simple. Use Russian natural gas and oil not only to make money for the Russian state, but also to keep neighboring countries corrupt and dependent. It solved so many problems. It reduced expectations for democratic governance and the rule of law in those countries. It created a corruptly empowered political class invested in preserving the Russia-dependent system that enriched both its practitioners and often their family members too. It also created comfortable space for organized crime to flourish. The Russian government under Putin's control has steadily become more integrated with all kinds of transnational organized crime in the former Soviet sphere. And not just because Putin has tended to attract the kinds of broken-nosed toughs who would otherwise be called henchmen if Putin hadn't made them so rich. The beauty of Putin's ever-deepening kinship with the mob was that it gave him a whole other set of levers with which to settle problems and to make problematic people go away whenever it might be unseemly to wield the overt powers of the state. As such, Putin's team in the Kremlin was delighted to utilize a man with the special skills and talents of Dmitry Firtash. Dmitry Firtash could shape Ukraine to the, to the Kremlin's liking. 
turn it from its increasingly worrying flirtation with the West, with the European Union, with, oh God, maybe even NATO. They cut Dmitry Firtash a sweetheart deal in Ukraine. Firtash's new company was given the exclusive right to buy gas from Russia to sell to Ukraine at a very large profit, about $800 million in clear profit in the year 2007 alone. Ukraine could just as easily have bought the gas with no middleman and no $800 million markup. But Putin wanted both, both the middleman and the markup. It cost Gazprom, the Russian natural gas company, a pretty penny, basically straight out of Russian government coffers, but it was worth it. Firtash, as well as some of Putin's other Ukrainian oligarchs, would have plenty of cash to spread around to shape their country in ways that Putin would appreciate. Some of that cash did go back to Moscow as tribute, but even more of it went to prop up the Party of Regions, which meant a whole bunch of it passed through or ended up in the offshore bank accounts of the mercenary American political operative named Paul Manafort. Manafort helped the Moscow-friendly Party of Regions win a solid plurality in the 2006 parliamentary elections, and then he spent the next few years dinging Ukraine's strongest opposition officials especially members of the Orange Party. For example, Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko. Tymoshenko was a particular threat to Moscow's influence in Ukraine. She'd made herself the frontrunner in the 2010 presidential election by seizing on that sweetheart natural gas deal for Dmitry Firtash. She promised to end that deal that put Firtash in the, million, in the middle of all of those gas deals. And she made a good case. Why on earth should this guy Firtash's company be allowed to siphon off $800 million in a single year by playing this middleman role that nobody needed and nobody had asked for? Well, Manafort and his team went right at Prime Minister Tymoshenko with full force. They helped drive her approval ratings down to 20% six months before that 2010 presidential election even when she renegotiated the Russia-Ukraine natural gas deal in 2009. She actually got rid of that deal. She cut Firtash out. Even that wasn't enough to sway a majority of voters to her. Manafort's guy, Yanukovych, squeezed by her and into the presidency in February 2010. Paul Manafort received much credit for the Yanukovych victory, and he got a rich new contract as the new Ukrainian president's off-site political advisor. One of Yanukovych's first acts as president, with Manafort as his off-site political advisor, was to sick a rabid state prosecutor on Yulia Tymoshenko. Lock her up. Yanukovych's prosecutor charged Tymoshenko with corruption, with the crime of abusing her official po powers by illegally arranging the new Dmitry Firtash-free gas deal with Russia. They said she was corrupt because she didn't get the required bureaucratic sign-offs. She got rid of that corrupt deal, and so they prosecuted her and convicted her and locked her up for corruption. Timoshenko had a lot of sympathy in the United States and Europe, so Manafort got right to work on a multi-part expensive public relations campaign to destroy her in Ukraine and in the United States. With Timoshenko stashed in prison, trashed by the American PR firms and law firms that Manafort hired, Russia's man in Ukraine, Dmitry Firtash, got back into the gas deal, which was better than ever. 
His company's operating profit for the years 2012 and 2013 added up to nearly $4 billion. With that kind of money available for corrupting any actual governance in the interests of the people in Ukraine, Putin's natural gas monopoly hovered over the heads of the Ukrainian people like a sword. Putin could tell things were going well when Manafort's guy, Yanukovych, reneged on his campaign promise to move Ukraine toward greater cooperation with, perhaps even membership in the European Union. Putin knew that wouldn't, that couldn't happen. Never. The problem was that the Ukrainian people liked the idea. Even when Putin promised $15 billion worth of new aid to Ukraine, the will of the Ukrainian people was clear. They wanted the EU, no matter Putin's largesse. The orange side revolted again. And what started on November 21st, 2013, as a small demonstration in the main square in Kiev, the Maidan, grew in just a few days to a 100,000-person protest. The demonstrators took over the Maidan and refused to leave. Bless you. <laughs> a violent crackdown by police in the last days of November didn't quell the enthusiasm. In the face of Yanukovych's armed and ready-to-fire security forces, determined protesters strapped on pots and pans as makeshift armor and took to the streets. The crowds kept coming and coming. Putin thought the cold Kiev January would break the crowd if the security forces couldn't. He was wrong. In February, as the Sochi Olympics kicked off, they were still there by the tens of thousands wearing their makeshift 21st century defensive kitchenware. They huddled for warmth around trash can fires. The protest had morphed from a demonstration about the EU question into a demonstration about democracy itself, about the will of the governed. Ukrainians were calling it the revolution of dignity. The demonstrators in Kiev were gaining courage in numbers. On February 18, 2014, they armed themselves with slingshots and braved a gauntlet of Yanukovych's armed security forces. They marched on the Ukrainian parliament. When Yanukovych's security forces started killing protesters that afternoon, the crowds retreated to their barricades in the Maidan and remained there through a terrifying night, protected by a ring of fire. Yanukovych's security forces broke out the machine guns, and they scrambled rooftop snipers the next day, and the civilian casualty list just kept growing and growing. One defiant protester standing behind a makeshift shield wearing a plastic helmet and a surgical mask, yelled, we are not afraid to die for freedom. Freedom is for us, freedom is ours. We will win, and Ukraine will be part of Europe, and Ukraine will be part of the free world, and we'll never be slaves, we will be free. Putin watched it all with a growing sense of dread and a growing sense of anger. Here at his doorstep was the Western conspiracy. America was the cause of all of this mess, he was sure. This is the last little bit I'm gonna read. On the eve of the final day of the Sochi Olympics, Yanukovych lost his nerve. He called off his security forces, called off his snipers, turned tail and ran. He gave over Kiev and the federal government to the orange revolutionaries. The Ukrainian parliament met in an emergency session. Legislators voted Yanukovych out of office in absentia. They also ordered the immediate release of Yulia Tymoshenko, and she was freed. And the parliament voted to refer Yanukovych to the International Criminal Court to answer for crimes against humanity. 
Yanukovych resurfaced a few days later in a party of regions stronghold in the Russia-friendly eastern part of the country. But he ran into protests even there. Thousands of his countrymen faced him down right there in his home streets, chanting, Ukraine is not Russia. Ukraine is not Russia. Ukraine is not Russia. And Yanukovych fled to Moscow. Putin was done trying to make nice. He'd had it with the United States meddling on what he saw as his turf. Vice President Joseph R. Biden had been in and out of Kiev for years, insisting that the Obama administration would protect Ukraine from Russian aggression. He said, we do not recognize, and I want to reiterate it, we do not recognize any sphere of influence. And he followed that up with what sounded like an insult. He said, the Russians have a shrinking population base. They have a withering economy. They have a banking sector and structure that is not likely to be able to withstand the next 15 years. They're in a situation where the world is changing before them, and they are clinging to something in the past that is not sustainable. Putin sort of took it personally. <laughs> so I hope we can talk a little bit tonight about how the oil and gas industry and its influence does link to the current impeachment crisis. I realize that's what we are in the middle of. I know there might be some interest in that. Uh, if you didn't hear the news on the way over, the Homeland Security Secretary just resigned. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll happily brief you on anything that happened in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> a whole night of breaking news. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say, though, that I did not set out to write a book about oil and gas. I recognize that I am not an expert on oil and gas. Even after writing this book, lots of people who know a lot about the industry will still say that I know nothing about it, and I've got that. But the reason that I ended up doing this is because I was basically looking for two things. Uh, one that I wanted just to understand and one that I wanted to be able to say on TV. Um, sometimes I look things up for myself and it's not for you. <laughs> but the one that I wanted to figure out how to talk about on TV um, has to do with this big fight that we are in, in 2019, that I'm not sure any of us knew would be the fight of our lifetimes, which is the fight for democracy and against rising authoritarianism. Yeah. To have our democracy under so much structural pressure right now and so much direct attack from the people with the most power inside our system of government is something new for us in this lifetime. Um, for it to be happening at a time when globally democracy is falling and authoritarianism is rising, I think puts us squarely in the middle of something that requires us not only to think big and to think about this as civic-minded Americans, but to think about this as citizens who may have things to learn from other parts of the world. And so I wanted to kind of figure out something to contribute. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of, a lot of people have said 
heartening or at least moving things about the threat to democracy and the need to stand up for it and what's bad about authoritarianism and why we shouldn't go that way and it's hard, you know, I, I feel like we've, the, the, the overall goals around these things is something that we keep articulating and that can be moving, but I also want to get specific. Well, what is it that is weakening our democracy? It's not just a direct assault, it's the way that it's gotten soft. Are there things that are within our powers to regulate, rein in, hold back, or cultivate that could make our democracies stronger? What has a corrosive effect on our democratic governance, both at the federal level and in the states? Are there things that we could learn from other countries, either in terms of worst case scenarios or in the way they beat it? And in thinking about that, I ended up thinking a little bit about industries that tend to produce poor governance where they operate. So I was thinking about that. And in terms of the Russia story, as you know, I am, uh, I've been focused on the Russia story without apology. Um, I'm, uh, I'm still remain very interested in what happened between our two countries in 2016. And in continuing to cover that, I realized that I was a little bit stuck on trying to figure out the motive force behind what Russia did in 2016. I mean, setting aside the real-world impact of the attack and the question of whether it had a help from the American side and all that, think about the balance of risk and rewards for Russia in what they did. I mean, that was a really wild punch that they threw at us. First of all, it was weird. You have this guy who is an oligarch connected to the Kremlin who runs a social media kind of factory effort in St. Petersburg and that's related to a military intelligence hacking and then you come up with Guccifer 2.0 to leak that out and then what are you doing with Julian Assange? Like this is, it's a very MacGyvered attack that they put together. Um, and that's kind of neat uh, to the extent that it's been fun to figure it out. But it also implied that they didn't feel like they had more direct means of accomplishing their goals. They were willing to get caught. They left footprints everywhere, especially in the cyber realm. But think about what would have happened in our country, in our relations with Russia, had Hillary Clinton been elected after what Russia did. I mean, Hillary Clinton is already a Russia hawk, right? And before Donald Trump, all the Republicans were Russia hawks too. If she had been elected president after Russia did what they did in this election, I mean, they were in for it. So this was a real risk. It smacks a little bit of desperation. Well, why are they desperate? What I arrived at pretty quickly is that it's hard to understand Russia's own motivation in the world, their own incentives and constraints without understanding that their economy really sucks. They're a really big country, biggest landmass in the world. They got 150 million people. For comparison, Germany has 85 million people, the UK 70 million, Italy 60 million, uh, South Korea 50 million people. Russia has 150 million people and an economy smaller than Italy's, smaller than South Korea's. I mean, triple the population, the same size or smaller economy. And then you get to, well, why is that? Well, part of it is that Vladimir Putin is the richest man on the planet and he didn't get it by selling anything. <laughs> but part of it is that Russia is a country that is floating on a sea of oil and gas. And it turns out that's a bad thing to base your economy on. <laughs> Woo! 
The other thing that I think starts to be important when you look at oil and gas economies is that oil and gas as an industry sort of makes its own political weather. For all the things that the industry is surprisingly not that good at, like cleaning up after themselves or sailing to Alaska, <laughs> what they're actually really good at is getting governments of all shapes and sizes to serve their industry's interests in a way that often tends to hobble the ability of that government to do a good job serving any other responsible purpose. I mean, setting aside whatever might be bad for your country in terms of having oil and gas production there, what we see over and over again is that where oil revenues flow, government tends to suffer, even when we're talking about a whole lot of oil revenue. The founding energy minister of Saudi Arabia says, all in all, I wish we'd discovered water. <laughs> Founder of OPEC once told an American academic named Terry Carl, he told her that as far as he can tell, oil is the excrement of the devil. <laughs> when the founder of OPEC tells you that oil is not only poop, but the devil's poop, it's like, there's definitely a book. There's a book in there somewhere. That's gonna be in it. I don't know what else. So I'll just say this, listen, oil companies are full of regular people doing regular jobs, both in my family, my partner Susan's family, we both have family members uh, who have worked in the industry. I have nothing against anybody personally. But the industry is, of course, nuking the planet. 76% um, of carbon emissions in the United States are from burning oil or burning natural gas. 76% of the emissions from the largest economy on Earth, I mean, that's kind of a whole enchilada. And the industry does also prop up terrible governments and weaken democratic, accountable governance everywhere. And on Russia specifically, it is worth understanding how much of a lifeline the big majors of the oil industry, particularly ExxonMobil, uh, have been for what has morphed into a really malignant kleptocratic dictatorship there that has tried to reorder the world and undo all Western alliances and that has smeared itself all over our politics and increasingly over Western democracies everywhere. And that's, I think, where we get to this conflict between you know, the conflict of our time between the rule of law and authoritarianism. That's where I think we get to these hard questions about how to best stand up for our democracies and defeat its enemies. The reasons to be hopeful, though, are many. Um, even though this is kind of a dark topic, the part of the reason I wanted to write this as a book is because I feel like in book form, this is pretty understandable. I, I, this is not a work of investigative journalism. This is hiding all everything, hiding in plain sight. It's just me putting together other people's reporting and the story behind it. Organizing is impossible without understanding. And if you can understand something, you're well on your way toward figuring out what to do about it. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm also buoyed by the examples of people sort of doing this right, showing actually how doable it is to rein in and regulate and contain dangerous industries like oil and gas. I, I did a book event earlier this week in Tulsa, which was freaking fantastic. And part of the reason I wanted to make my first sort of traveling book event in Oklahoma is because Oklahoma gives me so much hope. You're like, huh? No, no, no. <laughs> um, actually, if you, want to, if you haven't read the book yet and you want a little experiment, you can just read the Oklahoma chapters in order and it makes kind of an Oklahoma novella. 
I mean, the rest of it is good too, but like just that part of it. I mean, Oklahoma in recent years found itself facing an unusual set of crises. Um, Oklahoma is a state that had its government in many ways captured or overpowered by its oil and gas industries. And, and there's no shame in that. It happens literally everywhere on earth where oil and gas are produced in quantity. But when Oklahoma started like having man-made earthquakes and having other things go wrong, seriously wrong, they turned on their democracy a little bit. Not they turned against it, they turned it on. And they made change. And to see Oklahoma school teachers flood that state capital. <laughs> and wrestle school funding out of that Republican legislature, but also change the gross production tax on oil and gas in their state against every arrayed entrenched interest that basically owned the state government. They could not stand up against the people power and the direct democracy that the mostly Republican voters of Oklahoma showed when they came out and they put themselves on the line. And if that can happen in deep red Oklahoma, it can happen anywhere in the world. So there's reasons, I think, to see this as understandable and doable and to learn from people around the world and to learn from our fellow citizens. You don't need to, you know, flip states blue. You don't need a revolution to start to work on these things. You don't need the end of the fossil fuels industry. You need to start working on government regulation and accountability in a way that implies the basic tenets of democracy are alive. And it's up to us to show that. So, um, I'll just close with one thought. I, you know, I, I do think that the climate activists, particularly of the younger generation, are going to win. And at the end of any of our lives, one of the things we will be able to brag to other humans about in heaven is the fact that we were alive to see what they are going to do. And because I believe they are going to win and because the climate crisis demands it, I do think that the oil and gas industry is going to end up kneecapped. And there's a couple of important ways to think about that. And I think it's worth starting to kind of conceptualize it now and, and think about it now and to be cogent and constructive in the way that we do it. Yes, that's going to have a really big environmental impact when we turn away from oil and gas as our fuels of choice. It is also, though, going to have a big geopolitical impact. We overestimate the technological capacity of the oil and gas industry. They are still using paper towels to clean up when things go bad. <laughs> Just as much, though, we underestimate... Closed captioner, I love you. That was freaking fantastic. Now I've made the captioner nervous. I'm sorry. Thank you for that poetry. <laughs> All right. 
just as much as we have overestimated their technological capacity, we have underestimated their geopolitical impact. And if oil and gas lose their market share, and if that industry loses its sway in the world, I believe we should be prepared for serious geopolitical change. They are propping up really bad governments all over the world. They are propping up whole systems of bad government. And if they go away, particularly if they go away precipitously, I think the borders of countries will change. I think that we will go through a geopolitical reckoning in terms of what they've been doing to politics both here and especially around the world. And we should get ready for that because at that time, when bad, despotic, corrupt governments fall, in part because their patrons in this corrosive industry have lost their market share and can no longer do it, that is when democracy needs to be freaking fantastic and needs to be ascendant because when the boot comes off the neck of countries around the world that haven't had democratic governance, in part because of corrosive and exploitative industries like this, we in the United States should be there to help. And what we should be there to help with is our example of a strong, vibrant, non-corrupt democracy that works for the people. We'll be back with more from Rachel Maddow in a moment, but first, chances are, if you're concerned about the oil and gas industry, you're also concerned about the environment. Join us on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day for a talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning environmental journalist Elizabeth Colbert, author of The Sixth Extinction at Benaroya Hall on April 22, 2020. Colbert has talked with top scientists from Alaska to Greenland to get to the heart of the debate over global warming and ask what, if anything, can be done to save our planet. Tickets are available now at lectures.org, and just for Salon Air listeners, we have a special promo code that will get you 30% off tickets. Just enter the code COLBERT30 at checkout. Now, here's more from Rachel Maddow. So, uh, listening from the wings, you couldn't not hear. There is no small amount of... uh, enthusiasm in this room for you. I think it's, I think it's pent-up anxiety. I see. I think we've all been nervous. So, it's good to just let it all out. So just as an aside, before we get to the, the, some of the deep stuff in this book, um, fishing accident, right? Yeah. Was it at least a big fish? It, you know, so here's the thing. I actually fell into the boat. Oh. I was going out fishing with a friend. And it was very early because the tides were right for us to go out early. I am not a morning person. I blame the fact that it was 8 a.m. And I stepped from a dock down into my friend's boat and I just missed the step. So what happened was I went over one side of my ankle first and I tore two ligaments. And then I went over on the other side and tore the other ligament on the other side. And that is a terrible idea. Yes. Because then you have torn ligaments on both sides of the ankle and it takes a really, really long time to stabilize enough so that it can heal. Also, when the second tear happened with the really big ligament, I got what's called an avulsion fracture, which means it pulled off a piece of the bone. All right. Which I don't recommend. All right, I'll take you back to something that makes you feel a little better. Okay. Okay. So, 
In many of your interviews and in some of your opening remarks tonight, you were talking about Vladimir Putin's wild pitches. Sometimes you say wild punches, but in any case, do you think that President Putin is emboldened around the world because he knows the U.S. will not really do that much about it? He kind of has a wink-wink going there. You know, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks because, would you guys remember a few weeks ago on the show, I did a number of days in a row where we covered this mysterious nuclear explosion in Russia? So that was Putin testing a nuclear-powered missile of some kind, which apparently the United States experimented with sometime in the 50s or 60s, and we're like, no, no, no. We can't do that even as a weapon. That's a terrible idea. It's so dangerous, and it's a disaster even when it works properly. Putin's doing that now. Um, apparently, that's, that's what blew up on that launch pad. And usually, whenever anything new happens in the nuclear world, particularly nuclear weapons world, the world kind of responds and says, like, oh, no, there's test bans. You can't innovate new nuclear things. Um, there's been no response to that at all. The accident there, we only know about it because it killed a whole bunch of Russian guys, a whole bunch of nuclear engineers. The, 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 the radiation levels in the surrounding areas started spiking, the government was denying anything had happened. I mean, that was a really bad accident with a new innovative nuclear weapon that failed in its test. No international response whatsoever. At the end of August, there was another uh, apparently, according to U.S. officials who spoke at the Wall Street Journal, another Russian government-sponsored assassination in a Western European capital in broad daylight. Um, it wasn't nerve agent this time, but it was a guy who Russia has been after for a long time, and he's in a park in central Berlin, a block away from Angela Merkel's office, and they killed him um, in the park, and they've got the guy in custody, and he seems to be have GRU connections, and again, no response to that at all. Even if you just directly connect, can compare what happened with the Scripples, the Novichok thing that happened in Britain, with what just happened in Berlin, and it appears to be quite similarly attributed with similar confidence to the Russian government, the fact that the West and the United States responded to the first one of those they did, now they've done it again, and meh. I mean, he's already got whatever green light he wants. Um, when the U.S. doesn't lead on these things, nobody else steps up. So, in your book, you have um, quite a detailed description of the Russian Internet Research Agency. And I don't know about you, but I'm wor worried about the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, this Internet Research Agency spewed a lot of Internet junk trying to help Donald Trump win in 2016. Our intelligence agencies are telling us right now that the Russians are going to do some of the same stuff again. We don't know exactly what it'll, what it'll look like. Um, is there any indication that you've seen in, in reporting all of this out that our government is able to handle the Russian interference in the 2020 election? Yes. Um, the National Security Agency is part of a small group that was assembled um, post-2016 within the government that, that Christopher Ray, the FBI director, will sometimes talk about when pressed but doesn't really like to. Uh, the NSA appears to be in the lead on it, and it appears to be a very low-profile, keep-your-name-out-of-the-papers effort to 
it basically engage in cyber combat with the elements of Russian interference that are being launched like from the IRA. And so in the 2018 midterms, one of the things that the US government did very quietly was essentially shut down the ability of the IRA to say, to say anything. They were essentially locked off the grid by a cyber act by the US government. Now, the interesting thing about that to me is that they want to keep it low profile because I'm not sure that all elements of the government, of the US government would be happy to hear that, <laughs> I'm guessing. But also, the part of the way that Russia operates, that Putin gets his way, is that everything's always out of remove, right? And so the Internet Research Agency isn't directly Kremlin controlled, it's controlled by an oligarch who Putin controls. And so when they get shut down, Putin can't object and say, you're attacking the Russian government. Well, no, we're, there. we're just shutting down this thing in St. Petersburg that's related to a guy who's your chef. <laughs> and so that, I think, that effort in 2018 where they just locked the Internet Research Agency out for several days ahead of the 20, 2018 midterms, that was an eye-opener for me. And we could do stuff like that if that's we funny. can maintain the will to do it. So I want the audience to know that um, if you have questions, uh, you should prepare them now because the time's going to go really quickly. And so we welcome your questions and thank you for submitting them. One of the big takeaways of your book uh, has to do with the fact that runaway oil and gas drilling all over the world, and uh, including the manic U.S. effort for energy independence, Ukraine has the same, has really speeded up climate change. Our own governor, Jay Inslee, ran for president on this general mm -hmm. uh, topic, but he couldn't stay in the race. Uh, there wasn't enough there for him to stay in the race. So given Jay Inslee's experience, do you think this is really something voters care about enough to vote that way? Jay Inslee chain, single-handedly changed the Democratic Party. And he spent a lot of time on your show, isn't it? You yeah, know, I mean, but doing what he ought to be doing, which is lay, throwing down a gauntlet and saying, nope, that's not good enough. You're all saying the same mealy mouth talking points. We'll get back into Paris Accord. We'll, you know, sign up for Kyoto. All this stuff that's the easy stuff. He threw down the gauntlet to all of the other myriad Democratic candidates and said, no, get real. This is what a real climate plan looks like. And... I'm gonna push you not only to be more ambitious, but to understand that this is something that touches every aspect of US policy. And I think that because of the timing around the Green New Deal, he, he, he accomplished what he did at exactly the right moment. Because the Green New Deal became this other thing that the candidates didn't necessarily fully understand. They weren't fully necessarily um, engaged with what it would mean in terms of the kind of sacrifices that you would need and the kinds of trade-offs that it would entail to pass it. It just became an easy thing to say. And Inslee came in and called that bluff. And now if the Democrats win, the climate change agenda in the next iteration of the US government is gonna be leagues ahead of what it otherwise would have been had he not run. And, and I'm sure he would have preferred to, to run and win. But if you're going to run and do something else, boy, is that a good thing to have accomplished. And so, I, yeah, I, I know it's hard. 
Um, but I, uh, you know, these things, they, it starts with consciousness raising and it starts with activism that rubs people the wrong way. And then the activism starts moving people in their hearts who don't even, didn't even think they cared about it in the first place. And before you know it, your grandmother is doing extinction protests. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know Jay Inslee pretty well here. And uh, a lot of us thought when he first started, that uh, he was really, oh, he's really just running to become some kind of climate czar. Um, but actually, he seemed to get more serious as, as the months went on while he was in the race. So mm -hmm. he seemed to be saying, well, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really in this for the whole thing. And, and ultimately to change uh, the debate on it. Mm -hmm. So um, we share a villain um, in Aubrey McClendon, the co-founder of Chesapeake Energy. Uh, your book explains that, and this is hard to handle, that he was briefly um, a hero uh, for stealing our Seattle supersonics. Not, not so much around here. Many people, I have to tell you, my son couldn't stop talking about it. I almost couldn't take his phone call because I knew it was going to be about the Sonics. Um, these folks are never going to really get over it. So why was that so important, that taking our beloved team to OKC for so Aubrey McClendon. The reason that I wrote about that in the book is because from the Oklahoma City perspective, it has two roles. One is Oklahoma City wanting to get over its sort of inferiority complex and see itself as a world-class city. Having an NBA franchise was beyond a dream come true for them for that. So I wanted to tell that story about uh, living in a boom-bust dependent state um, the oil and gas industry being able to give people sort of bread and circus, even when they can keep their schools open five days a week. Um, but the other part of it is that, you know, the fracking industry isn't actually profitable. And the reason that the fracking industry has the gloss on it that it has had in the business pages is because of hucksters and debt merchants and, you know, guys who can talk you into anything, like Aubrey McClendon, who are at the forefront of that, basically, PR campaign to turn natural gas into America's competitive, um, into America's next fuel source. And he, there is, I mean, Aubrey McClendon is uh, no longer alive. His industry, uh, his company is trading at a dollar a share. The story of Chesapeake Energy is very much, I think, the story of a false narrative that was created around the idea of natural gas getting us out of this problem. But part of it was that he would steal stuff, and he stole your team. Yeah. Well, we'll take it back. We're trying to get it back, that's for sure. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your show and your ratings. Um, many of the years before... You have some fans, like I said. You guys um, read the ratings? <laughs> <laughs> So, for a long time, you had maybe 1.1 um, million nightly viewers. After uh, Donald Trump's inauguration, you went to 2.7 million nightly viewers. Hang on, hang on. Uh, to 3.3 million viewers during the week of the Ukraine story that it broke. And even again this week, I just saw Drudge was uh, announcing that 3.3 again this week. So my question is, are, do you think that you're able to take your show and reach outside your natural bubble or your natural audience? Oh, you mean when the news cycle means that lots of people want to watch cable news, is yes. that a chance to meet new people? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. Are you meeting new people? Are you bringing in new people, or are these this sort of your natural audience? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to think about the. I mean, I have a hard time with big numbers and relative relative big numbers anyway. I'm kind of more of a data visualization person. But if you think about it, what are we, like 330, 340 million people in this country? Like, so you're doing me, you're percent of the total. Yeah, yeah, me or like Sean Hannity getting like 3.2 million versus your 3.4 million. What? Our big rivalry. It's like, dude, nobody's actually watching us. <laughs> it's a big world out there of people not watching cable news. <laughs> and that's fine. Not, it's not for everybody. And given that it's not for everybody, I'm sort of happy for anybody who does stop by. But I also think it's folly to get too excited about small changes either between different hosts or uh, on, your, on your own trajectory. But I, I do have a sense of somewhere between self-consciousness and responsibility. Um, when I know that there is a lot of news watching going on, when people are interested in what's going on in the country, when it seems big enough that even people who don't usually follow might be tuning in. And I think the way that it manifests is that I um, try to get out of my own way in terms of uh, like inside jokes for things that you might know about from the show because you've been watching the show a long time. Like I try to not do those. Um, I try to not start stories about the big important news story that is driving such interest. I try to not start them in the middle, but instead go back to the beginning and say, all right, let's start from square one, just in case you've never seen the news before. Well, it makes for a repetitive narrative for people who have been watching every day, but, and some people don't like repetition, in which case you won't like me. I know that I have an iterative thing. We, you often, you'll often go all the way back um, in history and then get to, and then get to, like around the middle is where the news is. First, um, the earth cooled. This week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Peloponnesian War is helpful here. Yes. But starting, I mean, I, I really feel like if done properly, you can get anybody to a graduate school level understanding of any current issue provided you start in kindergarten. <laughs> you, and if you can figure out a way to tell the story with the right context and the right narrative and the right number of proper nouns, so that people don't need to take notes while they're listening to, you should be able to get from zero to early grad school with anything. And I, that's why my show has these long segments in it, but that's also why I've only got one or two guests on a night, because I'd rather try to do that even if I have to bring on experts to help me with the end of it. I'd rather do that than you know, bring on multiple guests and have them fight with each other about something we all already understand. Well, <laughs> okay, this might sound uncomfortable, but is impeachment good for the Rachel Maddow show? Uh, no comment. No comment. I, I mean, not, That's no. your shortest answer. Yeah, that is your maybe shortest I'll just leave it at that. No, no, because I, I, I've heard from other media that um, when the news is really tough, and even in um, the recent weeks with impeachment, that uh, people really do turn to various media. 
I, it's I, not just you. It's not just you. I mean, yeah, everybody's viewership is up right now. It's because That's the president is being impeached, and it's a huge crisis, and this is yep. only the third time it's happened in American history. Yep. And people want to know what's going on. I feel like what's good for me is when stuff does need explaining because of the format that I have developed on my show where you might get a longer form narrative and you might get historical context and you might get stuff put in um, up against a background of other things like it that might help you recognize the important tropes at work. That's not for everybody and that's not for every story. That's not usually great well, for explaining like a plane crash. But when the news is of a kind that it benefits from that sort of storytelling, I think it, it is good for me. Well, about the 20-minute, is 20, sometimes 24-minute opening essay, history lesson, um, it's very unusual in cable news. So how did you um, feel that you'd be, you'd do okay with that kind of a format? Don't we all have ADD or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I just took it and did it. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> I mean... There is a structure in cable news where you're supposed to hit your commercials at a specific time. I'm sure you do not. I am not I am good at that. Right here, right now. I'm really not good at that. I mean, look, I'm always in Lawrence's hour. I'm like, dude, Lawrence, I'm so sorry. I've got another 47 seconds I got to squeeze out, and he's like, he's so nice, you know. Like Chris Hayes never does that to me. He's so responsible. He Chris Hayes also always hits his commercial breaks on time. I haven't hit a commercial break on time ever. You heard it here first, folks. That is very important. <laughs> um, in the New York Times piece, writing, this is the moment Rachel Maddow has been waiting for, uh, they said that what you need for your show, you need active listeners. You can't really get on the phone, start cooking. You can't do all that stuff you do when you're watching uh, other, other stations and other parts of even, even your own network. Why is that? Can't look away. Well, at the same time, though, I mean, you, I do need active listeners, but most of the time you don't actually need to look. Does anybody here listen to the show instead of watch it? So I'm not a very visual person, as you can tell by the fact that I've been wearing the same thing, including the same haircut for 12 Speaking years. Speaking of which. <laughs> Speaking of which. That, another piece on you, the New Yorker piece, um, a couple years ago. I had to laugh. You, you do all this, you take all this effort so that you're not the female journalist and everyone talks about, what did she wear? You wear pretty much the same thing. Every single day. Every single day, kind of. Okay. And um, I, I wondered what your reaction was when Janet Malcolm opened that um, um, New Yorker magazine piece. Like when she went she, hard on that aspect went, of like, my psyche? here's the opening. It's all about your wardrobe. <laughs> what did you think? I was like, the whole point is it's not about the wardrobe because there's no wardrobe. <laughs> it's a uniform. I don't I mean, I'm not, I'm not a visually driven person. I, I feel like I, I, you know, was on TV. You're supposed to like look away, look a specific way that isn't distracting from the words you're using. Like, you can either look so amazing that it doesn't matter what you say. I am not going to compete on those grounds. <laughs> or you can look a way that is boring and acceptable and therefore not a distraction. And so I've just tried to make it not a distraction. But I, 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 do, I do think that the reason the show works as audio rather than just... A, I mean, sometimes there's like a picture you want to see or a graph or something. But I'm, I am a verbal 
person, not a visual person. And I essentially produced the show as if it were radio. Oh. So it works. You started radio. in radio. That's yeah. right. As did I. Yes. I yeah. like that. Uh, Radio's better. In in what way? It's hard. Don't you find that it's hard? It's more demanding. I think it's more fun. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's more fun. Why? <laughs> um, I think it's more fun because. Wait, I'm interviewing you. How is this going? <laughs> no, come on, just say. Why is oh, it more well, fun? Well, just because you're not worrying about your hair for that simple reason. <laughs> yeah. Somebody said, oh, your hair's in your face, you know, just all that stuff. So. <laughs> See, I never worry about my hair. I also find it more fun. <laughs> See, it's in my face. Okay. Jill Lepore in her epic new history of the U.S., These Truths, mm -hmm. kind of a doorstopper there in length writes that the rise of cable news accelerated polarization in our country. Between, um, eight, I'm reading from her, 1950 and 1980, when we had three major net networks, polarization was the lowest it had ever been. And this is where you come in. Lepore says cable news made voters more partisan by reinforcing viewpoints and limiting exposure to other thinking. Can you talk a little bit about polarization? And, and if you think about it, I think that we were doing a pretty good job polarizing um, we were good at without it. cable news. Uh -huh. But certainly, I mean, listen, right now what we have more than anything is fragmented sources of information and lots of good options for where to get it. And most people are shifting toward getting their news online. I mean, I, when I started doing the work that I do, when I was a news girl sidekick on Morning Zoo Radio, I would get a, I would get dot matrix printer AP rip and read, and I would physically cut it up with scissors and tape it onto a piece of paper along with other stuff that I cut out of the newspaper. Um, and then I saved them all, <laughs> which was, I'm a hoarder. Um, eventually, I will tell you right now the way I'm going to die, I will be crushed by a pile of paper in my office. <laughs> but, you know, now, I, you know, do all my, I do all my research online. My staffers, almost all of whom are younger than me, don't use websites in the way that I do. Even though they're also online all day, they're getting all of their information from curated feeds that they've built for themselves to help serve their needs as information gatherers. So I feel like there's, there's different ways to access information and humans are evolving in terms of our needs there faster than our platforms are evolving. And so, you know, I don't think that there is a mirror image between what we do at MSNBC and what Fox News does. I mean, nothing against what Fox News does. I just think in their primetime hours, they've got a different project um, than we do. No, and I don't mean it in a mean way at all. And I will actually take a moment just to say um, with great respect that Shep Smith has left Fox News today. And... I actually think it's terrible news um, because Fox is a place that has, it, I do think they have a political project going on. I, I knew Roger Ailes professionally before he died and one of the things he and I would talk about was essentially how he was running Fox News as a political operation and it's not a secret, I mean he was open about that. They were trying to elect Republican candidates and move the Republican party to the right. They were, it's a, he was a political operative and this was a big political operation. There's nothing equivalent to that in, at MSNBC. I don't even know if the executives at MSNBC vote. Um, I mean, I don't. It's just not like that. 
um, and so we are doing two different things, but given that project at Fox and given the very big market share that they have, to have somebody like Shep, not in prime time, but sort of prime time adjacent, being, doing straight news and occasionally showing outrage at things that were outrageous and being willing to stand by it despite the incredible blowback he got, not only from the other hosts at that network, but from their audience and recently from the president, that was a really valuable post in the world for him to have. And I don't hold it against him that he's left. I am assuming that he has left on his own terms. I don't know anything more than what has been publicly said. But that's a really big deal. I mean, you know, MSNBC, we've got Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough during the morning show, right? And we've got Nicole Wallace, who was a communications director for George W. Bush during the four o'clock show. And we've got, you know, Brian Williams, who doesn't have a political bone in his body doing his phenomenal 11 p.m. show, <laughs> which is so good. And then you got liberals like me and liberals like Chris Hayes and Lawrence. Yes, but it's a, it's a, it's a mix. It's a sort of oleo. And I'm, I, I, I lament that Shep will no, no longer be on Fox, and I'll support him whatever else he wants to do. He's a great guy, and he's great at his work, but He's gonna is, call you for a job reference, well, I'm quite certain. I, I mean, that'd be great, but, and while I would love to be his colleague, I want him to be at Fox, because I want Fox viewers to hear from him. So I'm sad. So I'm hoping the audience won't hiss at me for this. One of your worst shows, maybe one that you would like back, was the night you were pretty breathless on the air about uh, revealing, presenting, President Trump's tax returns. Uh, what you came up with wasn't much. Um, would you like that show back? <laughs> would I like back the show where I exposed two pages of Donald Trump's real federal tax returns? Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the body of it. Well, it's still the only Trump federal tax returns that have ever been made public. Fair enough, fair enough. I told you they'd hiss at me. No, I mean, I, I knew this listen, was hissable, but I think, yeah. <laughs> sorry, say that again? I knew this was hissable. No, no, it's not. It's a totally fair question, but I think the implication of you didn't get much is that you, given the fact that I was breaking the story, it was David K. Johnson who obtained them. He came right. on my air to do them. That's right. And I think the idea that because they were on my air, I only should have broken that news had it had some incredibly negative consequence for Donald Trump. That's not how news works. If you get access to something that furthers the story, and in this case, the only federal tax returns that have ever been exposed from the only federal candidate since Watergate, the only presidential candidate since Watergate, to say that those things are secret, that is something that I've wanted to be the person to break. So, I mean, people might have hoped for that story to be something different than it was, but I think we, I think I, I wouldn't take it back for the world. Okie doke. I'm very proud of that work. Okay. Onward to, um, onward to some of the audience questions. We've asked them to participate. There's a few here. What replaces oil and gas, and how do you keep that group from becoming the new oil and gas? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, anything that isn't putting the amount of carbon into the atmosphere that oil and gas is putting into the atmosphere will be better. Um, even if you end up with, like, big wind... Adopt that name. That Rachel Maddow, brought to you by Big Sun. Um, I, I look forward to crossing that bridge when we come to it. I do, um, I think that the oil and gas industry is going to be curtailed because of their 
unavoidable role in what's happening with the climate. And there isn't anything in the renewables world that is going to cause that same kind of problem. And so that's what's going to happen. How, how can journalists like you continue fact-based reporting while moving away from biased cable news culture? Can I see that? Absolutely. I don't get the... I, don't I didn't make clause. that up. How can journalists like you continue fact-based reporting while moving away from biased cable news culture? I am cable news culture. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I am. I mean, there's, I, I think that, listen, cable news is made up of cable news shows, and I do one, and I have the freedom to do it, and they, uh, the, the powers that be at the network don't tell me what to cover, or, and they don't tell me what not to cover, and I think everybody knows that I don't play requests. And so I don't know why that would be less the ethos of cable news than the general ethos of cable news. I, I feel like whatever um, I'm doing, I, um, I'm hoping to lead by example. Here's another one. Uh, do you consider yourself a feminist? And if so, does that impact your perception of Donald Trump? Yes, I consider myself to be a feminist. Does anybody here not consider themselves to be a feminist? We're in Seattle. <laughs> if you feel like you're not a feminist, you should meet some people here tonight and talk to them about feminism. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I mean, I feel like I'm full of feelings about Donald Trump. And I don't know where they come from. I've never had feelings about Donald Trump not as a feminist. <laughs> and so I don't know what that might have added. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people say to me like, what's it been like to do X, Y, and Z as a gay journalist? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never done it as a straight journalist. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never tried this any other, any other way. Okay. Okay. Just a minute. I'm just cheating. Yeah, that is cheating. That is cheating. So, um, what do you think will be the impact on our country um, of impeachment if it drags on really long? Are you worried about that? That is an excellent question. Uh, we have almost no historical experience from which we can extrapolate. All right? We got, what was it, 1867? 18, 1867, they tried to impeached Johnson and they couldn't. And then in 1868, they came back and hit him with the exact same impeachment articles and got him the second time. But even then, he wasn't removed by the Senate, uh, Was came within, I think, one vote. Bill Clinton in the 90s impeached by the House after the Ken Starr report and then not removed by the Senate and stayed on as president um, and performed, the Democratic Party performed well in the next election and that's become this supposedly you know, controlling precedent in terms of what the politics are of a president being impeached. That's one example. We have almost no other examples. And so I think anybody who tells you that impeachment, um, a quick one or a long one, that they t anybody who tells you they know what the impact of that will be is making it up. 
And I think there's, there's wishful thinking on lots of different sides about who it might benefit and who might it backfire on and blah, blah, blah. I don't, we don't know. That's, but that's also not the reason to impeach a president. You impeach a president to stand, for the, to stand up for the Constitution. And that's why I, I mean, when Nancy Pelosi talks about approaching this with sadness and approaching it prayerfully, I think some people, you know, think that that's part of her, you know, her spin or whatever on how she's going to talk about this. But I, I do think that she means it. And I am sympathetic with the way that she portrays that. This is a serious sort of, thing. Because I think there's a concern that if a Democrat or a media person appears to be gloating, that really harms our, our, Having our country. Having to impeach a president, or let alone remove one from office for committing crimes, for abusing the powers of his office to the detriment of the country, is not good news for anybody. I mean, what's worse is if you've got somebody doing that who bears no consequences for it and is emboldened. That's it. That's it. That's right. But the remedy is also traumatic, and it's something that we need to be big-hearted about, and it is something that we need to keep our eyes on the horizon about. I mean, whatever you think about Donald Trump, Donald Trump will be over at some point, and we will need to be the country that we want to be at that time. And if we need to repair and rebuild things in our country because of what we've been through, either in the Trump era or however the Trump era ends, we need to be strong, confident, know who we are, know how to work together, and know how to avoid making the same mistakes again. And it is going to take a civic-minded, open-hearted, constructive, organizing effort among citizens to make sure that we are not permanently wounded by this time and that when we rebuild civility and decency in our public sphere, it's not only brought back to where it was before, it's expanded because a lot of people didn't benefit from the civility and decency rules that we had before this. When we rebuild it, we need to be better than we were before. So I'm blending together several different questions from people who all are asking essentially the same thing. Okay. Uh, we don't have a guidebook for what we're going through here. We, we have a president who's refusing to cooperate with the process that we have in place. Are you worried about the future of, of our democracy with each of these sort of moments that we've been witnessing? Yes. Yes. Um, and for, I mean, I think my answer to that is mostly what I just said in terms of our responsibility as citizens to make sure that we are who we want to be at the end of this. But I do think that it would behoove us now, and I think particularly for liberals and, and Democrats and progressives and independents, I think it would behoove us now to start thinking the best of our Republican friends and family members and colleagues. And not only as a sort of mental exercise, but because I think, <laughs> no, I mean like, it's not an empty, it's not an empty exercise to like see if we can do it. <laughs> I think that when you look out at Republican senators and you s expect 
the most craven and the worst from them. And you expect, for example, with the impeachment process, that there's no chance it will ever be, that any of them will ever reckon with this in terms of their constitutional responsibilities. It doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy, but you'll never be able to have an eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart conversation with a Republican who might feel differently about that. And I think this is a, this is a time when we really don't know what's gonna happen. And the differences between Republicans and Democrats on paper shouldn't be life and death for democracy. If we're all pulling for this country, eventually our better angels will pull us all in the same direction. So, I don't know. I know that sounds a little airy-fairy, I got it, but it is because I'm worried and I'm trying to think about ways to be constructive. This isn't gonna end in a war, right? This is not gonna end in a war. Roger Stone is like on TMZ yesterday talking about how this is gonna be a violent conflagration and both sides are well-armed and and, and politicians who vote for impeachment are taking their lives into their hands. No. We are not going to do that. That is not where this is going. Where this is going to go is with a civic reckoning. And we're going to need to make friends with people who think differently than us in order for that to work. So, my last question here, uh, so many more, I'm just shuffling them aside here. You've been on TV uh, for 11 years. The news media has taken a pounding politically and financially during that time. What can people in our very enthusiastic audience do to support a healthy press and a healthy democracy? That's a great question. Um, do you give money to your local public radio station? Oh, do they? Oh, do they? That is really important. Do you support any other professional media? Do you subscribe to a paper? Do you subscribe to news organizations that need you to pay for you to get their content? Pay. Don't share your passwords more than you need to. (laughs) And I know paywalls, it's super annoying. And I know that it feels extractive for something that we ought to be able to freely traffic in. But the news business has been walloped. I mean, losing classified ads alone walloped the newspaper business. And that's something that was an evolution that was going to happen because of technology. But But what we lost from that is something that we need to keep our democracy going. And so I do think that I sort of I, I don't want to participate in the games that I think the president and his allies are sometimes playing, where they try to turn different types of journalists against each other. Um, I will always stand up for real journalists at other entities, even when they come from slightly different places than I'm at on the ideological number line. And I encourage you to do the same thing. I will also say that, you know, as we lose local news, we pay for that at the national level too. I mean, my TV show was the first national news outlet to um, discuss and break some news on the Flint water crisis. There's no way I would have been able to do that without the local news in Flint. And with the activists who were there doing their work and the local reporters who were covering them, that caught the eye of my producers who were reading regional newspapers who recognized that, connected it to another story we'd been following from other Michigan media and were able to bring it to a national audience in a way that resonated that ultimately, I think, changed the course of what happened there. When you lose your local, if, if you're comfortable watching MSNBC because you like me, but you're, you see your local press fading and withering and the reporter's job's going away, 
know that that is going to affect what I can do. And journalism is under direct assault from the president um, in a way that we've never seen before from a chief executive. Um, but we also are up against incredibly buffeting economic factors. And being a journalist at this point is a hard career path to choose. But if you're a kid and you are thinking about what you want to do with your life, think about journalism. If you are in school right now and you have the chance to be in a, in a student paper, that's the best training that you can get for being in a non-student paper. If you're thinking about grad school and you want to be a civic-minded person in your chosen career, think about J school. If you are a parent who is thinking about what you can offer your kid in terms of options, think about things that are going to expose them both to journalists and books. You want me to talk about family separation? Um, okay. Okay. So, so, so one sentence on what was it? Family, family separation. Family separation because, immigration. Yeah. One sentence. And yes. No more yelling. We have, we have a system here and all that. All that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's let's give you one line, but we're we're okay. we're, we're we're running out. Let's give you the one line. Okay. All right, all good. I mean, I've done all good. I, I, I don't, I don't have a, I don't know what the question is on that, but I will say, I mean, <laughs> it's about immigration. It's about the atrocities that are happening. Okay. All right. Yes. Oh, I. Okay. So just, I'm just one I'm, sentence, but I, I really I'm don't. Not in I, I'm not in disagreement with you. I don't know what to. That's why I want you to. Okay. Okay. But it's okay. It's all right. Just do. It's okay. Here. That's good. Um, first, it's. It's okay. It's okay, all right. but do sit down and let us proceed. Okay. I got, Thank I got you. it. Thank you. Um, I will say that there's the president's behavior uh, on immigration um, is something that has challenged us in a way that I'm not sure that we knew how to prepare for in terms of the moral crisis that he created. Um, I will say that one of the things that happened today, which uh, we covered on the show tonight, is that in not one, not two, but three federal courts, the new immigration proposal that the president has made where you're not allowed into the country unless you have money um, was struck down by three different federal judges in three different jurisdictions today. He also, a federal judge, simultaneously, a federal judge in Texas, of all places today, actually blocked his ability to declare an emergency to take money from other things in order to build his wall. So I hear your passion on it. I hear it. And I will just say that it is one of the places where we are seeing the judiciary as the last line of defense um, because on politicians, uh, it's on happening things. on many things. Yes, it's happening right. um, on this in part because while Democratic politicians have raised the alarm and sort of raised consciousness about what's going on, they have been unable to move Republicans to stopping even the worst things the president has done on this. So, I mean, when we're talking about standing up for different elements of our democracy, yes, do stand up for the fourth estate. Figure out ways to support journalism. Don't fall into the trap of denigrating judges that were appointed by Republicans because you're a liberal or denigrating yeah. judges who were appointed by, by, by Democrats because you're a conservative. Don't have low expectations for each other. If we're civic-minded, the institutions that we need, all of them, all three branches plus the press, are things that we need to support regardless of ideology. And I think 
That's Thank you for, for ending on that up note. Thank yeah. you so much, Rachel Maddow. You're Thanks, great Johnny. fun. I'll Thank see you, you on the plane tomorrow. Thanks so much to Rachel Maddow and Joni Balter for joining us on the South Stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lectures Board, staff, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.